When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I am speaking with Patrick Deere about the military-industrial complex. Before we get there, Patrick, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Absolutely. So my name's Patrick Deere. I teach in the English department at NYU, Modern and Contemporary Literature, specializing in war. But I do it in the cause of peace. (laughs) Cool. So what the heck is the military-industrial complex? Okay, so the military-industrial complex is the name that President Dwight D. Eisenhower gave to the U.S. permanent war economy in January 1961. Now, Eisenhower knew what he was talking about because he had been the supreme commander of allied forces in Europe and had supervised the enormous logistical and economic military buildup that led to the invasion of Northern Europe, D-Day, June 1944. He had a brief interlude as the president of Columbia University, which might make us wonder, is academia involved in this uh, story of the military-industrial complex? He was then president during the height of the Cold War, and rather strikingly, in his farewell address, issued a warning about the unwarranted influence of the military-industrial complex. So here is President Eisenhower A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. I throw that in just in case we thought that Eisenhower was a peacenik. So he goes on, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. 
And here's the famous and actually unexpected bit. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. So actually pretty cool that you have someone who knows the belly of the beast from the inside warning early in 1961 against unwarranted influence. The historian James Ledbetter has a wonderful book, anyone who's interested in this could take a look at, called Unwarranted Influence. And I suppose if there's one thing that was really helpful from a literary critical point of view that uh, Eisenhower did, it was that he hyphenated military industrial complex. He expressed what we would describe as a metonymic relationship between the military, between industry, and complex stands in for a whole bunch of things, you know, politics, culture, economy, education, academia. And and he did help us out by making those connections. So it's the name of a problem. Mm. It's one way of naming the largest discretionary part of the US budget. In other words, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, those are not discretionary. The US government has to use our taxes to pay those. But there is a staggering amount spent annually every year on the military budget. Mm. Journalists refer to it as the elephant in the room when they mention it. But Kim, when was the last time you heard someone talk about the military industrial complex? It's just, it sounds a bit weird, right? It's a bit retro. Yeah. It's a bit madman era. Yeah. Once I was talking to a journalist at the NYU Journalism School, and he said that when he mentioned the military industrial complex, to other people at J school, people started backing away from him across the room like he was some kind of weirdo or conspiracy theorist. It's a legally sanctioned, congressionally approved conspiracy to use up a vast amount of our economic resources. And as Eisenhower pointed out in 1961, it doesn't just name a relationship between politicians between defense contractors and workers and taxpayers. It's also a way of naming a problem that we really need to address. We need to have a better name for it so that we can at least debate it. The nearest military budget is less than a tenth of the US military budget. I sometimes think of it not as the elephant in the room, you know, this vast, unacknowledged, huge thing. It's more of a wolf in the room because it's devouring our ability to renew our infrastructure, to pay for universal health care. We could address student debt. We could renew our public school system. There's all sorts of things we could pay for. 
Yeah. And it's interesting that your reading of the military industrial complex emphasizes the economics of it. And so with that in mind, how do I use the military industrial complex? Let's say I have a unionized job. I work for Boeing and I use the military industrial complex because most of the big, highly expensive weapon systems, parts for those planes are manufactured in almost every state of the US. So that in a sense, there is an economic self-interest for workers and management and politicians. It's a way of sort of spreading this federal budget. The other thing they do is fund research. One time I was going to teach a class on World War I literature at NYU. I was strolling appropriately across the plaza in front of the Tisch building, the Stern Business School, and then there's also the Computer Science building next door to the business school. And there were these grad students wearing military-style fatigues with a drone which they were controlling with hand signals. They had it on a rope. And I walked over and said, excuse me, do you, do you mind if I ask what you're doing? And they, they're really excited. They said, yeah, we're doing research for the Navy on handheld drones. And I was a bit taken aback. And these were not people in the military. They were grad students and maybe a supervisor. But they'd all got dressed up in camouflage for the occasion. Because they wanted to hide themselves from the drone or something? Or Actually, that's a good question. I, I think they... <laughs> I was assuming they were kind of having fun, you know. Although, actually, if the Navy, you know, they don't usually wear camouflage because they're at sea. But we'll leave that aside. Marines definitely go around on the land. So I said, oh... It's a handheld drone. I mean, what's what are they going to use that for? And he goes, he said, well, there's a wide array of, mil um, you know, fascinating military applications. And I think he saw my reaction and he, he said, oh, and of course it has many humanitarian applications as well. And I, I said, oh, yeah, of course. And I, I walked off and, and then went and told my students. And then... You can search for these DOD uh, contracts online, but I was not able to find that one. So the question really is, it's a two-way street. How do I use it? How does it use me? And this raises the question of militarization of knowledge. And if we are committed to nonviolent resolution of conflicts, if we believe in peace, how can we push back against the vast reach? Sometimes it's, it's interesting, these animal metaphors. Sometimes it's described as like an octopus. Its tentacles are all over the place. I think the first step is to, is to make it visible. There's a wonderful radical economist that I actually worked for when I was a grad student at Columbia, Seymour Melman, who authored a book called The Permanent War Economy, which is maybe a better term for what we're describing than the military industrial complex. Seymour Melman trained a generation of radical economists who didn't get jobs in business schools because they were 
uh, not um, uh, market or finance oriented. But his suggestion was we need economic conversion, swords into plowshares. The Green New Deal, for instance, would be a great exit strategy out of the military industrial complex. And you could certainly have those firms producing a mixture of these different technologies. You wouldn't have to put people out of work. It's just in the end, it comes back to what are our priorities as a society? So maybe I use the military industrial complex by convincing Boeing to start manufacturing solar panels instead of airplanes, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Because the technology is there. I think you would also use the military industrial complex by saying, hey, Boeing, you have a lot of high quality union jobs and keep those jobs, have a happy, productive workforce. So I think, yeah, I think, Kim, you should get on the phone to to Boeing immediately and um, uh, see what you can do. On the note of convincing Boeing to save their union jobs and repurpose all their technologies, how will the military-industrial complex save the world? Well, it won't save the world unless... It is drastically reduced in scale. Every time I give a lecture on war literature, I slip in a PowerPoint slide on the US military budget because people just aren't aware of the numbers. I mean, the scale is vast. The military industrial complex could help us save the world if we just had a concerted debate across the political spectrum and just get people to visualize redistributing those vast resources. It would save the world if we could have a healthy sort of civic debate as citizens. But in the end, I think we could have a safe and secure world with a much, much smaller, constrained and contained military industrial complex, because we're not going to get to peace so long as it's eating up the lion's share of our resources. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Kim. It's really been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.